Rob. I'm no historian, uh, professional researcher or academic. I'm simply a passionate contemporary textile artist. Yet what I'm finding as I dig further into the new episodes for the Stitch Safari podcast is just how fascinating the whole art of the needle jungle really is. Just how much I don't know and how much I took for granted. I'm looking at my threads and fabrics with fresh eyes, I can assure you. Perhaps you will too. So join me as I forage through some fascinating topics. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch, sewing and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that comprises the art of the needle. My name's Cathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Few areas of humour and endeavour are so wrapped and shrouded in the filmy veil of history, myth and legends, tools and technique as that of textiles. Just look to the success of the numerous TV dramas seemingly in a constant state of production. Whether it's historically based, referencing the future or fantasy based, it doesn't really matter. What really helps carry that concept and vision, apart from the actors of course, is the cloth, clothing and embroidered textiles used to weave that spell of the time used for the storyline. Our ancestors might be aghast at our present day almost offhand attitude towards cloth, something they considered extremely valuable and that took them a great deal of time and effort to produce. Yet we now have the ability, knowledge and technology to produce fabric that functions as a touchscreen. Cassie St. Clair in her book The Golden Thread talks about the jacket which can be tapped or stroked to play or pause music, skip through tracks and so on, and which will alert you when you get a text. Hello? That's just mind-blowing to me. We might be a little casual about cloth, but we are still striving for that exact same creativity as our forebears. We even have a cloth and textile-based lexicon, such as spinning a yarn, weaving a spell, woven into the fabric, hanging by a thread, in danger of an unravelling, and social fabric, all of which have infiltrated our popular language and literature. Recently published is a book, Splinters of Scarlet, and take note of the stitch-based metaphors used in the short description here. The Truth is a Thread Only Her Magic Can Unravel by Emily Bain Murphy. It's described as an atmospheric historical fantasy likened to Enchanté meets Downton Abbey. And the book art is, drumroll please, stunning, eye-catching hand embroidery by Australian sisters Mary Kaur and Mary Carr. Just check out their Instagram feed for images of their stitched book art for Splinters of Scarlet. But how on earth did this fibre and thread odyssey begin? Join me as I meander through history and prehistory to begin to shed some light on one of the big four natural plant fibres 
which, like the needle, opened endless possibilities. It's a tantalising story, so stay with me. There are so few surviving pieces of ancient cloth. It's to remote caves, burial wrappings, tomb paintings, decorative pottery and illuminations we often have to look to for insights into this tactile, textile world of human existence. Indeed, the very stuff of human life. I've looked at the needle. Now I'm journeying into natural fibres used to twist a thread for making string, thread or rope for tying, lacing, sewing or weaving to create a cloth. One thread at a time. I'll just emphasise that. Cloth in ancient times was created one thread at a time. Can you imagine that? No wonder it was so cherished and treasured, patched, darned and reused. So let's map out the big four sources of natural plant-based fibres used for thread and cloth making during much of recorded history. They are linen, silk, cotton and wool. And the amazing thing is, these natural fibres are still of global and economic importance to this very day. For instance, the term riding on the sheep's back alludes to the wool industry in Australia as being the source of national economic prosperity. Both my father and grandfather were part of that Australian wool producing prosperity. So I have fond memories of the wool shed and the rather pleasing, heady smell of lanolin. In her book, The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, which I highly recommend, by the way, Cassia Sinclair has brought together a rich cloth and thread-related resource. It suggests that 34,500 years ago, humans wandered into a cave gouged into a mountain in the Republic of Georgia. Now, these people made tools from stone, obsidian and bone. But the revelation for me here was the discovery of microscopic fibres enmeshed in clay which slowly accumulated over time on the cave floor, which suggests they were making thread from plant-based fibres, strong woody fibres such as flax, hemp, rami or jute. And to produce these fibres required sophisticated processing. Apparently some threads were spun, some simply twisted, with several samples appearing to be a two-ply S-twisted yarn. Now let's just take a breath here because ancient man must have understood the benefits of twisting and plying yarn and I think that's a pretty amazing point to consider. Everywhere along this path, whether it's to do with needles or fibre, paleo man has used his creative ingenuity to better his life somehow, step by tiny step. Now, there are two types of yarn, and I've heard this before a long time ago and totally forgotten it. The Z or clockwise twist and the S or anti-clockwise twist. Plying a yarn simply means taking two or more strands of already twisted thread and twisting those two together in the opposite direction to how they were initially twisted, hopefully producing an evenly balanced plied thread. Sounds confusing, I know, but if you had two threads in your hands, it would make complete sense. And this is where I get really excited, as these 
fibre-rich discoveries became even more incredible. The fibres appeared to have been dyed, not in one, but in a range of colours, mostly black, grey and turquoise, but samples from later time periods included yellow, red, blue, violet, green, khaki and even pink. Remember, we're still talking about caveman here. Now let me just take this in. 34,500 years ago, Paleo Man was manufacturing fibres from wild plants. He had the knowledge to dye these fibres in not just one, but a range of colours. He understood twisting and in some instances, plying the fibres to increase both strength and usability. And finally, he worked out how to make warmer, closer fitting clothing by lacing or stitching these fibres together. Wow! That's what I call pretty amazing. And the ability to make these fibres for different purposes would have changed their lives dramatically. For instance, instead of draping those animal pelts across their bodies just to fall off as they moved, they could actually lace and stitch them together for a closer fit to their bodies, helping to keep them warm while they were moving. They could make cords or rope, Uh, to make more complex tools or perhaps even weave baskets. And let's not forget, this skill set just value adds with their ability to make fire, hunt for food and find shelter, the basic necessities of life at that time. Again, from the same book, The Golden Thread, Cassius and Claire cites an expert in prehistoric textiles, Elizabeth Wayland Barber, who suggests that the fabrication of simple string was a huge step in the development and ability to transform what they could do. Elizabeth states, You can tie things up in packages so you can carry more. You can put out nets and snares to catch more game so you can eat better. So there was a flow-on effect from this apparently simple yet complex step of twisting a natural plant fibre which impacted on human evolution and on paleo man's day-to-day survival. What's become obvious is that it's these seemingly simple innovations that enabled them to change their lives and living conditions for the better. Sinclair also suggests Prehistoric cloth making in temperate regions consumed more working hours than the making of pottery and food production combined. Makes perfect sense to me. I'd want a warm bed to look forward to each night as well as either warm or protective clothing, depending on the seasons. I hate sunburn. So now I'm going to focus on one of the big four ancient plant fibres, flax, and the processes involved in the creation of the bast fibres, B-A-S-T, and they're the tissues found inside the stem of the flax plant. It sounds simple. Go out, pick a plant, rub it around a bit and voila, you have a thread. Well, no, it's actually a lot more complex than even I first thought. Flax originally grew wild around the Fertile Crescent region of the Mediterranean, And there seems to be three stages at which it can be harvested, depending on how the fibres to be used. The first is the young green stalk, which produces a fine fibre used for making delicate fabrics. The second, when the stalk turns yellow, the bast fibres become coarser and stronger, perfect for hard-wearing clothing 
And lastly, when the stalk is at its ripest, this is when the fibres are at their toughest, making them great for string or rope making. Keep in mind, the plant has to be uprooted, not cut. It's then dried and allowed to rot and ferment, allowing it to soften and eat away the outer woody stalk, exposing those soft, bast fibres inside. Once tender, the flax is dried, then beaten and combed to remove any clinging, tough outer stalk. What remains now are the softly sheened bast fibres, ready to be spun into linen. How on earth ancient man worked all that out is beyond me. Necessity is definitely the mother of invention. But I'm glad he did. Linen's not only a beautiful fabric to wear, but to work with for clothing construction or to embroider into, with the stitches sitting proudly on that beautiful, robust surface. Again from St Clair's book, she says, It's true that linen conducts heat extremely well, making it feel cool against the skin, which is why it's associated with summer months and warmer climates. It's also one of the strongest fibres, twice as strong as cotton and four times as strong as wool. It ages well too, growing softer with wear and laundering. I think anyone who's handled their mother's or grandmother's or indeed any old needlework would remember that softly sturdy fabric that carries embroidery so beautifully, along with the thoughts and memories of the embroiderer through every stitch. Flex was essential to the economy and cultures of many ancient countries, especially Egypt. It was able to be stored and bartered in return for goods or services. Linen cloth, considered precious by the ancient Egyptians, was traded for items such as cedar wood. Indeed, it was considered so precious it was stored in the royal treasury. The production of flax occupied a large area of arable land at this time, with tomb paintings depicting various scenes including ploughing, sowing, harvesting and cleaning – indicating its place of value in daily and religious life. Linen was worn mainly bleached by natron and its creamy white colour was associated with cleanliness and purity. Remember, linen was revered in ancient Egypt and used in numerous religious rites, such as mummy wrappings. When Howard Carter discovered Tutankhamun's mummy, however, he wasn't at all interested in the fine linen used to wrap the boy king, He simply cut through it. Sad but true. China and India cultivated domesticated flax at least 5,000 years ago and the Romans used it to make sails. Charlemagne is said to have revived the crop in the 8th century CE, helping cement laws designed to promote both the hygiene aspect of wearing linen textiles and the health benefits of linseed oil, an offshoot of flax production. Flax was known in Russia, with ancient scripts evidencing the use of linen by the Slavs in clothing, sailcloth, fishing nets, ropes and linseed oil. It was an important crop for commerce and craft, able to pay feudal dues as well as payments to the Tsar's treasury. Peter the Great, Tsar of the late 17th century, known for his extensive reforms, approved the first standard for flax in Russia. 
Flanders became the centre of the European linen industry during the Middle Ages and flax eventually migrated to North America where it was able to flourish. Both Europe and North America depended on flax for plant-based cloth up until the 19th century. It's a fibre that's been long held in high esteem because of its amazing versatility. Now let's move on to the tools that evolved to create these spun threads as a fair few have survived. Spindle whorls, a weighted disc often made from clay or stone which fits onto a spindle to increase and maintain the speed of the spin have been found in abundance. Weaving looms have also been found although most haven't survived as they were made from wood. These must have been highly prized as the depiction of a ground loom was featured on a dish found in an Egyptian woman's grave in the 4th millennium. In her book, uh, The Golden Thread, Cassia St. Clair talks about a fascinating, if not slightly poignant, find from a bronze-aged, fire-ravaged house in Troy, she says. The house had been consumed by a fire so quickly that the warp weights were found in a perfect row where they'd fallen. Scattered around them were 200 or so tiny, shimmering golden beads that were likely being woven into the cloth before the fire broke out. Now these facts and figures roll out so easily, but we're talking about everyday people just like you and me here, going about their daily routines, now forever frozen in history through what they did as well as what they used. I have to wonder what will be made of our lives and work in times to come. However, back to thread making. That twisting, twirling, drawing out motion gives rise to all cloth making processes and takes a great deal of practice and skill to produce an even thread. I know it would for me. I don't think I'd have the patience. Under twisting apparently results in a weak thread and over twisting causes the thread to turn back on itself, creating tangles during work. And I think anyone who embroiders has experienced that. Sometimes a spindle and rod or even a hooked stick were used for spinning a thread or fibres could be twisted between the hand and the big toe or thigh. As mentioned before, threads once made could be used on their own or plied together, creating a thicker, stronger thread suitable for hardier tasks such as lacing or ropes, braiding or cording. So just to recap, because we've travelled a long way here in 10 minutes or so, I'm going to use the word creative now because one thing man had to be to survive was creative. Somehow he worked out how to make a string or thread from a wild plant and even figured out how to colour those fibres, probably using minerals collected while hunting. I have to wonder though, what prompted that need to colour those fibres? Was it purely aesthetic or was it to denote a clan or hierarchy? Whatever reason, I'm glad they did. But then they also worked out that twisting the fibres make them stronger and able to be used to lash or stitch hides together, attach some decorative shells perhaps, and even add some rudimentary embroidery-like stitches. Then they worked out how to ply those threads and imagination would suggest that they could use these to make baskets, twine and ropes. And from that one single twisted thread, they also somehow used their imagination to begin to weave and to create cloth. Now that's an amazing journey. Thanks so much for listening to me today. 
I know this episode's been a bit of a trek, but it's a fascinating one and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have presenting it. Join me again in a fortnight's time when I'll move on to the sumptuous and exotic world of silk, the shimmering mist. I'm so excited. And remember, life's a rich tapestry. Only you can embroider one stitch at a time. Okay, bye for now.